Welcome to Better For Y'all, where a couple of above-average idiots offer lowbrow commentary on highbrow health and wellness issues. Welcome back to the BBCast. <laughs> I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. We're going to talk all about how the things that we put into our body these days might be making us gay. Ooh, that's a hot topic. Isn't it? I know. It's a little- Super hot. <laughs> I know. I don't. I hope. I hope we don't um, cross any lines today. Oh, I'm. I have no doubt that we will. Um, before we do, though, I want to. I want to hear. Uh, you told me before we started recording that you you finished listening to or watching the documentary. What? Uh, and and the documentary I'm referring to, of course, from episode one was the the one on Netflix about the study where one member of a, of a yep. twin group right uh, became a vegan and they kind of studied the differences between the vegan and the omnivore so what, what what did the documentary say right so you can go back and watch that whole episode that we did last week to kind of get a, a, a deeper a, a deeper look at, at our thoughts on that but I just wanted I just noticed something that I, that I thought was worth pointing out so in episode two they they, so they, they were following this TV show was following four sets of twins, two males and two females. And in the second episode, they started out with the two sets of female twins in a doctor's office and they were choosing what kind of porn they were going to be looking at. Yeah. You know, so right, right. I'm kind of like, what, what's going on here? Well, yeah, as what it, kind of doctor was this? <laughs> well, as it turned out, what they were looking to do was see if there would be a difference in moisture, arousal, wetness, warmth, humidity, dankness, whatever <laughs> was going on in the loins of these four women, they wanted to look at it. And so they gave them they gave them each an iPad uh, and gave them a variety of pornography to choose from. Uh, and they had a, uh, a a FLIR imager, like right, <laughs> <laughs> just like you know, no. right in front of them while they watched Why? it. Why? Totally. So they they wanted to look and, and see a change from baseline uh, following you know the eight week intervention period of the, the twins eating either a vegan or an omnivorous diet. So they wanted to see if if becoming vegan made your snatch dry. Totally. Did it? Well, no. What they found out is that. Um, they it was basically a heat map that they looked at. So so they determined that you know that they had a percentage increase. Um, both everybody everybody became more aroused by the end of the eight weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It, it was, so so they did the porn at the beginning and the porn at the end. Yeah. Did they control for watching the same porn at the beginning and no, the end? They didn't, but the women had their preferences. <laughs> <laughs> you know? There's so many confounding variables in this I situation. I don't think I could take this seriously I, I, at all. I, I know, I know. They didn't this this was not reported in the paper. Um, you know, this data this was, was not, just for Netflix. It definitely it was it was it was pretty scandalous. Uh, but but it was also it, it wasn't you know, this it wasn't we weren't watching pornography on Netflix and they did make it accessible for people, I suppose. But I mean, you certainly was, can far, watch near pornography from, on Netflix, though. I mean, this is right up Netflix alley yeah, for sure. It was far from robust science. It really <laughs> like what they, what they found, what they, they determined on these heat maps was that there 
and again, there was no like statistical significance that I was able to find, but, um, the women on the vegan diet had greater, greater percentage increase on their heat map as, as determined, you know, as some, some nebulous determination okay. by the, the physician who was an older male, an old guy. <laughs> Loves his job, doesn't he? Yeah. So the conclusion was that being vegan makes you statistically significantly more aroused by pornography than if you're an omnivore. At, at least that's what they found with these when looking at these four women. Well, there you go. There's your reason to become a vegan if you didn't have one already. Yeah, check. <laughs> okay. So that good follow up. I, I know, I know, and and I think it'll it'll be a seamless transition into what we're going to talk about today. So a couple years back. There was a, a PETA online campaign, and the gist of it was that mothers who gave mothers who had high urinary levels of phthalates, which are you know essentially they're they're used to soften plastic. That's what phthalates are. That's what phthalates are. Okay. There's, there's, we'll get into this whole class. Turns out that's not all they soften. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing <laughs> there, people. <laughs> so, so moms with higher urinary levels of these chemicals gave birth to sons with tenises. What the hell is that? A tenis? A, yeah. a tiny penis? Oh, oh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just, is that some new internet vernacular? I'm well, I, I, didn't, I didn't want the censors to... I didn't want... We talk about baby penises. I didn't yeah, know I wouldn't, if that was going to get... <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Yeah, in fact, I would beep that out later if I were you. Yeah. Well, Especially it, in light of all the Epstein stuff. We don't need to go down that Baby path. dicks. I mean, imagine <laughs> imagine the, the investigators <laughs> doing this study. I mean, like, whip, like whipping out and measuring baby penises. Well, once they pop out of the womb, you know, there's, there's something maybe a little bit more innocent about the medical aspect of things, but you're right. I mean, that'd be an awkward position to be in as a doctor, I would say. It's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a, it's a strange angle for PETA to take here Yeah. that, you know, essentially if your mom ate chicken, like, I hope you enjoy your micro penis. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your mom hated you. <laughs> you know, um, is that was it? Is, is, that's what they. That's what their study was like. If that you, was not what the study. The study was had nothing to do with eating chicken. Peter just made that leap because chicken flesh typically has a, a relatively higher um, concentration of these chemicals uh, compared to the flesh of some other animals. And and compared to you know how how concentrated it is in, in other aspects of the the food supply, so so this is sort so, of a a equals b b equals c so therefore a equals c yeah kind of situation yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and is that a fallacy or or is that and no pun intended by the way <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like is there is there legitimacy to that in in some cases or in this case. I would. I, I'm. I'm never one to plant definitive flags on on stuff like this because I'm sure there's some example where you can make that leap. Um, but I don't know how you do it in in this case, and I and I don't know exactly how you 
determine there's a uh, clinical relevance here because the the mean the mean peen <laughs> the, the mean size of these uh, uh, of these baby penises <laughs> don't you can say it differently than that you can and you should <laughs> so the, the study population had a, a a mean penile length of seven millimeters it's tiny it's a tiny little baby dick Wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're ta- I mean, we're like you know, like not inch, even, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, like barely even. I mean, it's it's just I haven't seen a lot of baby dicks. So I'm, I'm guessing they're not too you know girthy, uh, but really anyway. don't need to get into more detail than that. Yeah. We anyway, go without your commentary. What's on that. what's the what's what's the clinical relevance of the study itself? Um, you know that 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 kind of opened up a little bit of area of exploration in, in my mind. I was like, why, why are we, why are we looking at this? Mm-hmm. What are these things? You know, we start to, we, we're hearing about these things all the time right now. They're the hottest thing to hate in the nutrition. Phthalates. Food, phthalates, yeah. PFAS, forever chemicals, BPA, these endocrine disrupting chemicals, right. you know, the EDCs everyday carry if you will because we're we're just because we're carrying them around (laughs) we're just carrying around forever wow as it turns out so these things again like we talked about the phthalates they make plastics softer um bpa the you know that's that's uh some of these these pfas and bpas these are uh put on surfaces to make them resistant to like oil or water or grease Right. So, I mean, we have like, like Teflon is a good example. Any pan coated with a nonstick surface typically has some kind of these, these chemicals in it, right? Right. The food will never stick to the pan because what the pan's made of will stick to you forever. I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did there. Okay. So, so the, and, and here's something that I want to kind of dig into a little bit because these chemicals like BPA, for example, had its moment many years ago now. Uh, it, it became... Oh, you know, the public became aware that BPAs were in water bottles. I remember Nalgene was sort of under fire because Nalgene's were kind of popular at the time and other plastic water bottles for that matter. And it was a pretty swift response for manufacturers to take BPA out of those water bottles. So BPA free became all the rage. But what did they put in there instead? Because these these bottles needed something to soften them. So from what I understand, now there's a variety of BPA alternatives like BPS and right. I think BPD and a, and a variety of, of other, you know, basically just added a different letter to the end instead of A. Are they substantially different? Are they better for us or are they not? Do we know? We don't know. And that's, that's, the, the, that's really the million dollar question here is what we do know is that there at this point are hundreds of in vitro animal human epidemiologic birth cohort studies that show that effects or associations between these environmental chemicals and things like obesity. Um, and these, you know, we're including systematic reviews, meta-analyses, many, many thousands of, of pages of documents at this point from uh, research institutions all over the world, at least associating the presence of these chemicals with disrupted hormonal signaling, 
um, you know, disruption in uh, transcription factors, a whole variety of questionable health outcomes. What are the what are the in layman's terms? What are the effects of those two things you just mentioned? Hormonal signaling and transcription factors. Vast and varied. You know, they a lot of these. There's there's a new kind of model of of obesity. So we, you know, we've we've looked. We're always looking at, at how we can bridge the gap between the individual's choices and the systemic factors involved in driving negative health outcomes. And so one of the big ones we've always looked at is this, uh, the, the model of obesity, because obesity is becoming, as, as you well know, over the last 50 to 70 years, we've just seen this rising rate of obesity. It's affecting populations that previously hadn't. It's you know, running rampant in small children. So we're, we're trying to figure out what the, the causes are. And the, there were really like two primary models previous to the last 10 years or so. One was this energy balance model, and that's the whole calories in, calories out. Mm-hmm. Then you had another carbohydrate insulin model, which was more of a um, energy storage situation. We began to look beyond or go dig a little deeper into what's known as the redox model. What's that? So your mitochondria is basically responsible for energy generation at the cellular level. Um, when you have uh, when you've met the, your energy needs, but there's an excess balance, your mitochondria wind up generating what are called reactive um, oxidation species, reactive oxidative species, ROS. Mm -hmm. So this, these are the reasons why, why people take antioxidants. Oh, okay. Okay. So as you begin collecting these, these uh, ROS, these reactive oxidative species, you can have cellular damage that ensues if you're not able to, kind of clear those species and ultimately like the more species that develop the, uh, you know, your antioxidant systems become overwhelmed. They're unable to clear the species that are there more build up leads to cellular damage, um, leads to metabolic injury. Interesting. Okay. So, so when you say that, you mean like, what is that obesity? Is that cancer? All the all the above. It can any? it can lead to any number of metabolic disorders. You know, when when you start talking about, you know, the body's uh, the body's going to respond to, uh, you know, a excess of glucose. You're gonna have um, a, you're gonna have the beta cells in your pancreas release insulin to try and shuttle that glucose into the cells that it needs just to to live. Whether that's brain muscle. You know these these sinks that that the body uh, has has good good um, is is a good way of storing that energy. If you if you know with the presence of too many of these reactive oxi, oxi, reactive oxidation species um, or too much glucose, you do wind up with with an energy imbalance. 
Um, you wind up with de novo lipogenesis, which is where your uh, body begins to its typical facilities for dealing with glucose break down and it winds up generating fat, um, particularly around your organs. Mm. Um, so this is that, that visceral fat that, that, you, that we start to hear about that becomes very difficult for people to deal with. Yeah. Um, so to get back to the, the conversation around these forever chemicals, these endocrine, endocrine disrupting chemicals, the presence of those tend to lead to these sort of disorders that people so are So now we have this new model that's, that's, that's the obesogen model. Um, and what it does is it basically works to connect the environmental factors with the energy balance and uh, energy storage malfunctioning that, that we see. So it's, it's this kind of whole, holistic view of how we become disrupted metabolically through not only environmental factors, but also what, uh, you know, but also the, the carbohydrate model mm. by, by too, ma too many carbs. Right. So our, our diet is, is off just enough that that causes an imbalance and then compound that with all of the things the, in all the household goods that we use or in the cookware or in plastic bottles or whatever. And then you've kind of got this perfect storm of factors that can cause a variety of different maladies. Right. Because we want to, we're trying to, it, it's one thing to focus in clinically on an individual, but, but why are we seeing, you know, these vulnerable populations that previously weren't being affected, namely juveniles, you know, what's happening to what's happening in utero, what's happening epigenetically that is, is causing these changes. So that's where these, these models sort of, that's the whole downstream. That's where our interest lies in, in defining each of these models is determining what we can do to, you know, prevent, uh, prevent the, this epidemic in the, you know, from happening in the future. Right. So, so, you know, we, we had talked about how, um, these chemicals are being highlighted uh, for removal. Like the FDA is is seems to be working on our behalf to the extent that they are they're pushing for these things to be removed from like uh, baby products, right? Because we don't want to introduce kids to these chemicals at a at a sensitive developmental age when there can be significant downstream effects, right? Right. So this part of the conversation gets a little funky because. We assume that the FDA, the the EPA, the you know, National Institutes of Health, you know, Consumer Protective Services, or whatever you know, we assume that that these products, you know, how do they how do they make it to market without really rigorous testing? And you know, the fact of it is, they they don't. They ultimately. What happens is we have a set of, of chemicals that get okayed for use based on, you know, sometimes 70-year-old data that has obviously evolved over time and has had more and more opportunities to, to show its effect. But what we've seen happen is, and this, so this is in, in 2016, there was a citizen's petition to the FDA to remove a handful of specific 
subtypes of phthalates from, from the market. So the FDA receives this petition from the citizens. They then go to industry and they say, manufacturers, what, what do you all think about this? Manufacturers respond, oh, we've actually stopped using most of these. Uh, we still use a couple of these. And so the FDA at that point then turns around, denies the petition that the citizens sent to them, but says, hey, we are going to, we're going to pull the authorization on you know, 25 of the 28 that you wanted pulled, but not because of potential safety issues, only because they're no longer in use in industry. Mm. So they basically did not admit that they had failed in any way to protect consumer health by saying, oh, yeah, th these 25 are, are actually bad for you, and you're right, we should get rid of them. But rather, oh, uh, well, no need to really investigate if they're good or bad. The manufacturers have already stopped using them, so no, don't worry about it. Also, don't worry about these three that we didn't discontinue use of because because what, how, what was their justification? How could they possibly say, oh, we're just going to continue to use these three even though like you guys are establishing that there might be some health concerns here. So this is a case of, you know, absence of evidence is maybe evidence of absence. Um, it's very difficult to determine any kind of acute, uh, you know, acute impact of these chemicals on development in, in a human. What you were know? the three? Do we have, do we know specifically what the three phthalates were? Oh, there's a, yeah, we could, we could pull that list up. Um, I'd be really I, curious I'm, to know like, what research there is to suggest any any link to health. So health I mean, real, there's the the you've got MEH. So it's a uh, what is it? Methyl hexyl or methyl hexyl phthalate. There's like a mono ethyl hexyl phthalate. There's a di ethyl hexyl phthalate, um, and then there's like just a mono ethyl phthalate and a di ethyl phthalate. Those are like the big the big ones that seem to be still still used. They all sound like things you would not yeah, want in some, your body. Yeah, just some, you know, some, some chemistry bullshit that like, <laughs> you know, better living through chemistry. That's what kind of ushered in this, this uh, you know, the modern life. What is that, like DuPont's slogan totally. or something? Actually, <laughs> it seems like it would be. Yeah. Better living through chemistry as like mm -hmm. everyone's like glowing and fucking vibrating. And Ugh. remember, these are that's this is one class of these things. You know, we've gone on to like we, we've gone on to identify a handful of these from parabens that are in things like aerosols or in our deodorants or shampoos. You know, dishwashing detergent, laundry detergent. You know, all this stuff to the 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 liners that that help, you know, keep things, uh, wicking sweat from you to the liner on the inside of an aluminum can. And, you know, to again, the phthalates that, that add a bit of flexibility to plastic, you know, these things are, or, I mean, the PFAS that are so dominant across nonstick cookware. Um, you know, anytime you wash a, anything that's made of polyester, this hoodie, your shirt, whatever, like anytime you wash that, that stuff winds up 
going into the water supply. And is that something that is typically removed by contemporary wastewater treatment? It doesn't appear that it is. Really? So that stuff is recycling through into the drinking water. Yeah, these like these nanoparticles. Um, you know, if you, if if you, and they, they've they've looked at this now. I mean, it's it's some it's something like ninety seven percent of of juveniles, you know, of, of, of kids thirteen to seventeen years old have circulating PFAS in in their in their urine and their blood. Wild. Yeah, and. So again, long-term, you know, we start to wonder what is the hormonal impact? What's, what's happening from a, you know, gene signaling perspective, you know, at what time point are these effects being noticed? Is this, you know, does this have something to do with why, you know, female onset puberty is coming about much earlier well, yeah, I mean, never has. Right. I, I think, yeah, no, we obviously we started off talking about this in the context of like something very spicy, right? Like penis size. Oh gosh. Like, you know, heaven forbid, like anything happened to that. And, and truly, because it does have reproductive health impacts, but also like just thinking about it from a broader perspective, like this does mean that people, kids develop differently or more, more quickly or less quickly. I mean, whatever was normal, whatever was sort of the natural, like, typical progression is modified in some way that is more than likely not good because it's not the way that nature would have previously intended it to be in the absence of these things. Right. Totally. And this is bearing out in some of these randomized controlled clinical trials where they are looking at, they are, they're seeing mothers who have, again, these higher levels of these endocrine disrupting chemicals in their urine. They're seeing, Things like a smaller uh, anogenital distance in males. So, you've you've seen a vagina before. I have, and you. and you've you've seen your uh, package before Indeed. every day, probably. Indeed, most days, yep. so, sometimes several times a day. <laughs> You're pretty familiar with both. So, <clears throat> what we what we know is that typically that distance is is. Um, a certain percentage larger for males than it is for females. So the distance from, from your, the, the middle of your the anus, butthole. the middle of your butthole to the, the beginning of your genitalia. Okay. Okay. We've referred to this as the taint, right? Technical term. Yeah, exactly. But the, the AGD, the anogenital distance is, uh, is how the anatomists, uh, we'll we'll refer to that, and, and because and it's, we're it's mature, a, it's, a, it's a good marker um, of androgenic development for for kids. And because we're yeah. mature and professional, we will <laughs> refer to it as the AGD, not the taint. Yeah, totally. But interesting to note that something so juvenile would have such interesting scientific impact, you know, or relevance today. That's, anyway, yeah. So that's that seems to be where in this this attempt to, I mean. For lack of a better word, gaslight. You know, we get we get industry, and uh, we get industry and bureaucracy teaming up to tell us. You know, with like with with regards to the BPA situation. So they say first they deny that anything's wrong. Right? There's these things are perfectly safe. Use them on, on everything. 
Then they say, oh, wait a minute. Some of these BPAs aren't safe. We're going we're gonna to replace it, but it's okay because we're replacing it with BPS. Then they essentially normalize these, these things and they've, they've become so ubiquitous that, that there's, it's, hard to, it's hard to really live without them. And this is this, what, what's known as the kind of cross-industry playbook of um, you know, consumer deception. This is how they, they sort of frame their, their arguments to alleviate any concerns from the consumer that there's, that, that there's any nefarious activities afoot. You know, this is Big Sugar did it, Big Tobacco did it. You know, they do it for this. You, you see these same arguments with climate change. You see the same arguments in transportation industries across all industries. This is this is a uh, a common playbook used. Walk us and, walk us through that that framework as it might have been employed by one of those industries. So again, like we'll we'll use the example at hand. So with these with these chemicals, they first said there's nothing wrong with these chemicals. We're going to, you know, we're going to allow their use in industry. Then they, they get adopted widespread. Then they say, oh, wait a minute. They get adopted widespread and certain things start to happen. And the consumer begins to question their use. And then as kind of like a, a, an olive branch of sorts, industry, bureaucracy say, oh, you're, you know, yes, there are some problems but but only but we're going to introduce something something a, a new one that'll solve that problem, okay? So then that system becomes fairly normalized. Then you have you you start to look at you know people begin to the, nothing has changed these products are still in existence so the same things that people were alarmed about to begin with are continuing people are still having dysfunction in some regard. So then that gets, the blame gets put on the individual at that point, gets shifted away from industry and it's looked at as, oh, well, maybe it's because, yeah, we do use all these products in fast food wrappers, ultra processed food. Like maybe, maybe the individual shouldn't be eating as much ultra processed food. Yeah. This is a lifestyle choice. It's a you, lifestyle shouldn't, choice. you shouldn't be eating that or whatever. Hmm. Then it becomes scattered where these products are so ingrained in, in everyday life across multiple industries, across multiple use occasions, where it's just become so normalized within daily life. And the web has become so complex and interwoven that it's impossible to disentangle it. It's overwhelming. And the point. consumer at that point is like, well, any one of these other frames, you know, perhaps there's a way that we could work to, um, you know, we could work to eliminate these problems, but we, we can't because it's just so, it's so ubiquitous in, it's everywhere. in, in, in everything that we do. And, and, and so people just give up and they, uh, and very convenient for the, uh, <laughs> the industrial industrial players that are using these chemicals or, 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 you know, whatever product they're, they're, you know, trying to, uh, continue using, and what you're starting to see is that in a, I, and I, again, like I hate to, I hate to be so conspiratorial about this, but because these, these things are fairly consistent across decades and across industries, it's worth pointing out, you know, you get these situations where 
you know, right now the FDA is being very vocal um, and and active in pursuing the they look very deeply at, at removing heavy metals from from the supply chain and particularly within products that are geared towards humans that are under the age of two. So they're looking very specifically at something different than the PFAS, you know, the phthalates, the parabens. They're looking at a different endocrine, potential endocrine disruptors that are still associated with industry, but, you know, maybe not quite as, um, economically impactful, you know, and maybe, maybe a little easier to remove from the chain, you know, lead paint, you know, having various toxic heavy metals in, in these products is, is something that the public can easily glom onto. It's like easier for us to understand that maybe it's bad to have lead, aluminum, you know, some of these things in our in our food than it is some of these other like more esoteric chemical compounds that like most of us don't really understand. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I mean, I think that there's probably just, there's been more time for those to be in the, in the zeitgeist, if you will. I mean, all the way back to classic stories like Alice in Wonderland, right? Like the Mad Hatter was mad because of the mercury used in felting hats that made him go crazy. Like that's an age old story, you know, dating back what, probably hundreds of years. Right. So people are more familiar with those compounds, more understood the effects that they can have on people. So perhaps it's a little easier to wrap our minds around that rather than this like really long amalgamation of, of hexodimethyl, whatever the hell it is, right? Like that's just a lot harder to, to conceptualize. And especially because there's so many more of them, like they're so they're, they're, you know, they're creating new ones every day to replace the ones that we've decided are bad. So like, it is sort of just this like whack-a-mole of chemicals that appear in everyday life. I can totally understand why people would get overwhelmed by it because, okay, so you say, okay, we have to get rid of endocrine disrupting chemicals. What does that mean if you want to eliminate those from your life? It means it means uh, hygiene products, personal care products. It means uh, laundry detergent and uh, dryer sheets and fabric softener. And it also means dish soap and hand soap and, oh, it's in your clothes too. And it's it, like, where isn't it? Where aren't they at this point? Very few. I mean, essentially th this, this becomes a very deep rabbit hole that one can, can pursue and it will 100% involve being ostracized from your community <laughs> <laughs> depending on you know your, who's in your community yeah, it yeah. will absolutely it, it's going to cause some inconveniences for your family um it's going to it's going to cause some it's going to ruffle some feathers you know like it, and, and it's it's going to cause some inconveniences for you and it's going to cause it causes us to maybe accept some of the the trappings of of modern lifestyle as being not quite as not quite everything that we were promised you know and it's maybe not, not necessarily better living with chemistry it's not you know like uh, th these are some things that that I've come to realize over, <laughs> over the past couple months with regards to like how I you know approach 
just the silly little things that we have to do as humans, like washing our clothes, you know, it's like, you actually don't really need some of these things that, that, that were, that were pushed to varying degrees, to varying degrees. Right. You'd be surprised like how, how much stink you can get out of your clothes with just hot water and baking soda. That's fair. That's fair. You know, you'd be surprised at how clean you can get your body with, you know, a, a olive oil based soap that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't smell like a, you know, babbling Irish brook or <laughs> But it's so pleasant. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd be, you'd be surprised at how quickly you, you can feel your skin being moisturized with beef tallow. You know, some of these things that we have, we have, like, it, it seems so weird when you tell people that you put fat on your face. Let's not, let's not forget that, you know, soap is fats. Well, right. Yeah. What, what is, what is a body wash or like, what are these like, or like a a moisturizing cream or something like that? Like, it's really just like some sort of synthetic lipid, right? Totally. As opposed to an animal based lipid. And we're fucking couple of above average idiots here. So we're going to like, probably we're not like lipid chemists. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I would not go that far. I am average Joe through and through. (laughs) So, I mean, what I do know is you often see, you'll see, you know, on a, a thing of face cream fortified with, with vitamin E or, you know, you, you, yeah, you see, you see these things. It's like, why is it so weird to, to rub a fat on your face that, that comes from an animal that has, that's very rich in vitamins, A, B, C, D, E, and K, you know, that's very, that's not dissimilar from your own skin you know, the, the layers of sebum that, that are, you know, excreted from your own pores, you know, why is it so weird to rub that on your face? Something that you'd have no problem eating, but it's like totally okay to, you know, rub this petrochemical, this, this, this petrochemical from Procter and Gamble or whoever all over, you know, the, the largest organ on your body, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't take a bite out of your bar of old, old Irish spring or whatever, but like, you know, like you'll happily rub it all over your arm, your porous armpits, mm-hmm. you know, you'll happily rub these things. Like you, you won't eat them, but you'll put them on your, the largest organ on your mm-hmm, body. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fair point. I think there's, there's a couple, a couple avenues I want to go down here just because there are questions that, that are popping up for me. One is, okay. So these are called forever chemicals. If you've lived a life as long as I have or you have 30 plus years using these things, is it too late? They're already in me. Are they going to, can I get them out? Or is it like, is there a benefit to stopping now versus just say, screw it. I'm just going to live my life and not be that guy who rubs beef tallow on his armpits. It does seem that there is some positive evidence that these things don't that these things that a, a, a normal healthy individual can get rid of these things relatively quickly can yeah mm-hmm. so they're not forever coming I mean they're forever in the world maybe now but not necessarily again, in the human body it's hard to determine the epigenetic alterations that have occurred from our parents 
uh, consuming them when we were in the womb. Can you explain that just briefly, epigenetics, what that is? Yeah, that's this idea that the actions, behavior, environment, patterns of consumption, lifestyle choices of, of your parents can actually signal certain genetic factors um, to uh, with, within the progeny. So they can sort of, they can um, effectively, the decisions that your parents made or perhaps even their parents can have genetic effects on your DNA generations later yeah. or even your kids' ge- genetic information. Yeah, they've showed associations. I mean, even even like funny things like, I mean, if, if your your mom worked out when she was pregnant with you, you're more likely to, to you know, to, to associate, assign yourself as a, a, a gym rat later in life. Interesting. You're, you're more likely to be an active person. So just as epigenetics loose, can, loose can associations, but these things do exist. You know? And, and so just as easily as those may uh, indicate positive lifestyle choices or, or, um, you know, impacts for you, they can also translate negative things as well. So if your parents worked in a deodorant factory and they're around a ton of aluminum or something like that, like the, the impact that that might've had on their DNA or their genetic makeup in some way could imprint itself on you or, or future generations. Yeah. And this evidence is bearing itself out and becoming impossible to deny, you know, and I think that's why you're starting to see these products or these, these EDCs being removed from products that are specifically, you know, uh, utilized by babies. You know, it's, it's like the industry, FDA, et cetera, are, you know, like I said, extending this olive branch or is it a, a smoke screen of sorts? Is it, is it meant to, is it meant to, uh, you know, establish consumer trust that, that this is, this is something that the, you know, these, these companies do care, these organizations do care, or is it to, is there some other kind of like more nefarious motive or is it just like they can't deny it? They need to start doing triage. Might as well start with, with babies. Right. With, well, with, with the ones that we can actually do something about. For sure. You know? For sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's probably a couple threads to pull there. I mean, like we both know that, I mean, value judgment aside, companies first objective is to make money and to benefit their shareholders if they're a public company, but to to create profits because that's why people go into business. That's why businesses exist is to create valuable products for consumers and to create value and to produce revenue. Um, totally. Can't I mean, exi- the, you can't exist without that. No, the executives at, at P and G or wherever, like they don't, they, they want a healthy family too. Well, but, sure. <laughs> absolutely. Why not? No, I, yeah. uh, but just, just like, you know, tech CEOs might uh, select which social media platforms they let their own kids on or which media they let their own kids consume, you might wonder if the CEO of Procter & Gamble allows those products into his or her home versus maybe more natural alternatives. But we don't need to get into like, you know, the psychoanalysis of the CEO of a large CPG company necessarily. There's a lot we don't know about that. So that's not really fruitful. But bottom line is there is evidence to suggest that a healthy human can 
detox from some of these forever chemicals relatively quickly. What's relatively quickly? I think the I think these things get out of your system in 24 hours. The problem is we're just constantly exposed to them. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. so I mean so say you were to just completely purify your home tomorrow mm-hmm. and get rid of all of them. Uh, are you still exposed peripherally from like what's coming out of your neighbor's dryer vent and pumping into the air that's getting sucked into your house? Like how puritanical do you need to be to like protect yourself from these things? I mean, and maybe you don't know, but. I, I don't have all the answers here. Here's here's the here's how I've gone about assessing and managing my risk. So I'm a firm believer proponent in getting regular blood work done. Okay. Okay. We know that. So the the things the easy things to to start with would be looking at your liver enzymes, ALT and AST, and looking at um, your kidney function, your glomerular filtration rate. You know, if you can look at those things first, because these are going to be your the first phase detox, first line of defense in, in, in terms of detoxification. You know, if you can look at those and say, hopefully, you know, everything is, is going great. You, at least, okay, you can at least say, okay, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing all the things I need upstream in terms of my lifestyle, my hydration, et cetera, to make sure that my detox system is firing. You know, if you see that there's some issues, you know, some of the, I mean, there's easy things that you can remedy them with. There's, there's supplemental things that can be remedied. I'm not going to recommend any supplements, but like, we're not doctors. Yeah, exactly. This is not medical advice. Um, there are any number of sources that you can pursue on your own to, Look at how um, you can how you can benefit your your detox system. Um, so I would start there. Just those are relatively easy things to look at. So understand your baseline, like mm-hmm. where your blood work is now, and how your 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 internal filtration systems are working. Yep. Uh, and then if someone wanted like the the top levers to pull in terms of like removing some of these things from daily life, consumption, the home, et cetera, what would be the top ones you would look to? Man, I, I, I hope that this makes people realize how sincere I am about this, given that my living comes from the sales of, of beverages in aluminum cans. I personally have limited the, my intake of, of drinks from aluminum cans. You know, I keep that to a bare minimum um, because of the because chemicals of the, in the liner, liner that's 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 inside of all of those cans. Wow. Um, that's, I mean, I, that's so probably something my partners would hate to hear me say. <laughs> you know? I but, mean, but I think I think it does demonstrate, uh, you know, a degree of uh, high, uh, you know, integrity to. To be honest about that. So alternatively, you would drink out of what glass or stainless glass steel? Glass or stainless steel works great. I mean, certainly avoid plastic. You know, every time you unscrew that plastic lid, you're getting nanoparticles of plastic that go into that beverage. You know, they're establishing that within any plastic sealed beverage, there's, I mean, some hundreds of thousands of, of yeah. units of, yeah. of particles of. Yeah, every time you unscrew the lid, screw it back on. You're you're gonna get 
those little micro particles that you're consuming. So ditch, ditch consuming plastic. from plastic. Mm-hmm. But, but but I mean, like plastic packaging is ubiquitous in food. I mean, right? It's exactly, including all of the food that packages anything you get from Wendy's or Taco Bell. Not even that. You're going to eat the highest quality organic grass-fed ground beef that you can buy from your local co-op, and it's going to come in. It's going to come in. It's coming in a shrink-wrapped plastic pouch, or it's going to come in. Uh, waxed paper of some kind with that I have to imagine has some sort of plastic chemical lining, right? Yeah, and what's the what's 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 the alternative there? I, I don't know yet. I mean, you gotta got to literally go butcher the cow yourself. <laughs> Just take a bite yeah. right out of it in the field. Yeah, I mean, these Still things will living. probably get addressed at some point. You know, or maybe we start, um, maybe we start, you know, drying out the the intestines and sealing the meat in, in the stomach or something. I don't know. Like that's ridiculous. Right. But the, well, these, it seems this like is not every day that that's a, that's a, a solution that maybe agriculture will solve at some point, you know, like that's a tiny one. To me, the bigger yeah. hurdle though is going to be the FDA, right. Or the regulatory bodies that certify the packaging that food comes in because they are the last line of approval for, you know, what counts as a, a, you know, a safe, a food safe barrier for your product. They're the ones that mandate and, and probably rightfully so, right? That a that a beverage have a liner inside the can. Cause do you want the beverage to in direct contact with aluminum? With the aluminum, right. Probably not. Because <laughs> we know that aluminum is a neurotoxin, which you are getting on your lips every time you put your mouth on an aluminum can. There are, have to be micro particles of aluminum there, right? Oh totally. We you know, we did the corrosivity testing with with our liquids and um, you know, met well below the minimal detect minimum detectable limit. Um, but you know, that's the thing that you're only required to do one time for one can manufacturer. And there are how many thousands of beverage brands in aluminum cans, both, you know, sophisticated and startups, you know, being to most of these plate, most of the cans that you buy, on the shelf at a grocery store aren't actually packaged by the purse, by the brand or whatever that, that, that says on the can, it's, you know, you, that, that brand has given up all control of production to, you know, some co-packer, co-manufacturer, and, you know, hopefully they're dialed on uh, their <laughs> compliance and, uh, you know, all of the food safety stuff, you, you know, you, but even if they are and the regulatory, body that is overseeing their compliance isn't mandating that they do things beyond a certain scope, which certainly they aren't, right? Because it's not like the FDA is is looking at beverage manufacturers and saying, oh, well, we really need to uh, be looking at the contents of the liner of the can because blah, no. blah. they don't like that's that not, not that is not something they give a shit about. They don't. They don't. <laughs> I mean, more more likely than not, the regulators at the FDA or wherever have come from you know what they or are going about? to they, they, a major food or beverage manufacturer. It totally. I mean, there's absolutely that, um, you know, that regulatory capture situation going on. I mean, you're actually most health departments will force you to use some of these chemicals in cleaning your surfaces like you can't operate without having a, a quat cleaner, it, you know, like the the health department, local health department, city, state, or otherwise is not going to allow you to operate if you have food surfaces without chemicals that it, 
that sanitize surfaces that include these endocrine disruptors. There so are like endocrine disruptors in a in like a quaternary sanitizer. <laughs> yeah. What it what, what do you know what ones off parabens? Parabens, I think. Yeah. Um, Wild. Yeah. So like, yeah, you know, there's there's certain levels of bureaucracy that have just made it impossible to avoid these things. You know, if you're manufacturing consumer packaged goods, and therefore if you're consuming packaged goods, <laughs> you're 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 being exposed to these, whether or not you've ever given any consent. You know, yeah. to so the best thing, best things that you can do, the highest leverage, you know, levers that you can pull to to get some of these things out of your life would be being deliberate and intentional about the containers from which you consume, right? Yeah, so coffee, reusable like, or disposable coffee cups, get that, don't get that shit out of here. Right. Like get uh, a, get yeah, a reusable yeah. stainless steel coffee mug and bring that to your barista to make your coffee in that instead, yeah. right? Like that's a pretty easy one. You and I have been using um, a, a beef tallow based deodorant. Oh, you're going to, you're going to just out me like that on the show. <laughs> you're going to make me that guy. People are going to be like, oh my God, he's the guy who's fucking, no, it's all right. My other podcasts say that everyone already makes fun of me for being the guy who rubs his deodorant on with his finger, which I'm okay with because you know what? I feel better about not putting whatever those chemicals are on my skin. And, 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 and I actually, I do want to make sure that we, we get to this and we don't have to dive all the way into it right now, but I want to talk to, to the audience about why it is that we're doing this show and what the purpose is and the value that we want to hope to add here, which I think is taking a little bit of the insider knowledge that you and I have in the food and beverage industry from years of working in that space and convey that and also give people, um, you know, a little bit of an idea of ways that, that we can incrementally improve our lives through, you know, the Kaizen approach to, to, personal health and also just like the, the freedom and the responsibility that we have to make intentional decisions about the things that we put in and on our bodies. Yeah. And that's one of them. I mean, anything that goes on your skin is, is like you said, you know, being absorbed into the body's largest organ. That's a huge one. Dude, I'm really grateful that we get to kind of be the, the test subjects for a lot of this stuff because I mean, we're not, we're not perfect by any stretch you know, there these are trappings of modern society that we're we're testing on ourselves. We're seeing that there are problems. We're removing them. We're identifying alternatives. You know, we're constantly evolving our understanding of what what it means to be better. And you know, the that's what I'm hoping that we can kind of impress upon anyone that likes and subscribes to this or even just listens passively is that, you know, we don't need, we don't need a couple, we don't need everybody to be perfect. We need like everybody to just be a little better. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's the opportunity <laughs> yeah. that, that we each have. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, you know, we, cause we talk about the philosophy behind but the better for you space in general can be laden with a bit of guilt, mm -hmm. right? It was like, oh, well, you're not making the best decision by going to Wendy's or, you know, by by eating this convenience meal, this highly processed thing. But like we, we have busy lives and we have situations where we don't always get to make the best decisions, but there are places where we do make the, the better decision we can. And to just apply that that opportunity to be like 1% better here or there 
that 1% adds up oh, across a year, you across apply, a you day. You apply that, that principle and, and watch the momentum that builds behind it. Mm-hmm. It starts translating into all these other aspects of your life. Yeah. I think we have an interesting opportunity mm-hmm. to, like you said, be the test subjects in a way, because uh, we are seemingly similar in the sense that we are willing to be early adopters of interesting new trends or, you know, uh, health products or, or whatever. And, uh, hopefully, you know, we can stumble onto some things that, that provide value to others as well. And I think that there's, there are a few things out there, a few levers we can pull that are, that can have an outsized impact. And I, I look forward to exploring some of those. Oh, we're going to get into it. We're going to get deep, buddy. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yes, we are. I'm ready for it. All right. Final thoughts before we close up. Don't wrap your barbecue in aluminum foil. And don't wrap your balls in plastic. Thanks for watching. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently vegans have more fun in the bedroom. Dude, I have a really good time in the bedroom. (laughs) I, my, like... My virility, my like sexual energy has without a doubt, well, I mean, it's just measurable. Like my, my T levels since I've started giving a shit about this stuff, I was told by the doctor at Deaconess to stop doing some of the things. And I'm natural. I don't, I'm not taking, I'm not like taking exogenous testosterone or anything like that. I was, I was told by the doctor at D, at, at Billings Clinic that my testosterone was too high for a 40 year old man. What's the problem with that? I mean, it can lead to, you know, like cardiovascular event. Um, I mean, they're, they've, they've got, so you can have a heart attack while having the best sex of your life and go out like a goddamn hero. I'm, I'm I'm okay with. Yeah, you are. (laughs) You know, yeah, you are. I would absolutely take being, being on the high side. Um, and if, and, and again, there's lots of variables that I've, augmented but we've mentioned just a couple here there there are others and we'll get into them yeah over time i look forward to that Mm -hmm. hell yeah hell yeah like and subscribe thank you we love you see you soon